airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1423 XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest is one of the true survivors of music radio, starting back in 1976 and still going strong. He kept many of us company on those long overseas flights, and if you happen to be around in 2080, yeah, good luck, you might even still hear his voice. He is Trevor Sinclair. I've got a song to sing, I've got a music to Trevor Sinclair, welcome to Pilots. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. Okay, Trevor, let's start off by rewinding back to Canterbury Boys High School in Sydney, a school that boasts an interesting array of alumni, including a Prime Minister in John Howard, Mr Movies Bill Collins, Graham Bond, who we all knew as Auntie Jack, Anthony Mundine, the boxer. The list goes on. So what are the memories of Canterbury Boys and how, if at all, did that set you on your career path? Well, Canterbury was a very interesting school back in the day because it was a, a selective school. So they plucked about eight of us out of our primary school where there would have been 20-odd oh, boys, eight of us, and sent us off to a separate school. Uh, and that was the one when it was selective. And, of course, we, as you mentioned, as soon as we arrived there, the alumni were mentioned, as if to say, live up to these boys. Um, my memories of school were all great at Canterbury Boys, um, always in the drama group always in, into theatre, always into the music, I was in the choirs, I was uh, knee-deep in every, everything kind of creative that uh, the school was doing, that was for sure. First radio gig came in 1976 at 2LF in Young when you were 21. How did you fill in those years between leaving school and landing the gig at Young? Well, this is an interesting one that a lot of people don't know. I've only started to tell the story recently that uh, I actually trained as a chef. So I went off to... TAFE, uh, did my apprenticeship as a chef. I got into about year three of that and completed the formal part of it. There was one more year of the apprenticeship. And in that final year of that apprenticeship, I thought, I actually want to go and do something a little more creative than slumming it around in a hot kitchen, as it were. So uh, I uh, went off to radio school with Max Rowley. I was there about four months and suddenly landed this job. I put out so many sort of audition tapes, if you could call them that, 
I'd sent stuff off to Mariba and everywhere else around the country. I think I'd put about 80 audition tapes out back in 1975 slash 1976. And suddenly I got a call from Young and Mariba within 24 hours of each other. And I thought, well, where do I really want to go? What's closer to home where I grew up in Sydney? And headed off down to Young and then realised that how many people had come through to LF in Young and got into the industry. And gosh, this just goes on of people that have been so successful out of that area too. Now, besides the annual Cherry Festival, Young wouldn't be high on most people's must-see tourist lists. Tell us a little bit about the town and about 2LF. A funny little town. I can tell you a little bit about the day I arrived because I was, I lobbed down from Sydney via Canberra and left off everything that I basically owned in Canberra until I could find somewhere to live in Young. So it was a funny little town population, only about 6,000 when I got there. And they'd put me up in the, I think it was called the Great Southern Hotel overnight. I could be wrong. I'm going back a ways here. But the first thing I heard was this bloke called Cabbage McDonald on the radio of a Sunday night. And I'm listening to this radio station and all he's playing is country music. And he sounded like he got straight off the tractor because he had got off straight off the tractor. <laughs> and I thought, oh, gosh, have I really made the right decision coming to this little town and this radio station? But then when I went in and met everybody on the Monday, I realised, yeah, all was, all was good in that world. So, yeah, it was a very urban town. Um, met some interesting people there. Uh, one bloke who was the son of the stock and station agency, um, was the road manager for a band called Hush back in the 70s. So he could, would come to town on, on weekends often and sort of we'd have something common to talk about music instead of, you know, ploughing fields and picking cherries. Okay, Trevor, now was there anything that you could do in a small country radio station that you wouldn't get away with in the big smoke? I can tell you one funny, one funny story. And I'm trying to remember who our CEO was at the time that I was there. But it was a Sunday night and they'd got me to do an album show. And I was doing this album show on the Sunday night from 7 to midnight or something strange like that, maybe 7 to 10. And I'd gotten hungry. So I thought, oh, look, let's play a whole side of Dark Side of the Moon and pop on around to the local Chinese restaurant to grab my takeaway. So I did. Who was there? Table one, the CEO. <laughs> oh! Oops, probably enough to give you indigestion too, Trevor. Hey, listen, a quick stop off at 2ST in Nowra, and then it's an appointment in the nation's capital at 2 C. The morning's not that clear anymore. The sunshine's not that near anymore. But I know how to warm my day. Sing and dance, let the music play. Music, radio, 2 C. How'd you end up in Canberra, and what did they have you doing there? Well, Canberra was here. I wanted to get to I'd set myself a goal let me go back there Paul because I'd set myself a goal to get back to Sydney within three years of getting into regional radio and I'd kind of plotted out after I got to young I thought okay the next step up we'll, we'll do a, a coastal town and it was it had a reasonable reputation and it was only a couple of years old 2ST at that time but I was heard by the program director um, Rob it was a program director at 2CC in Canberra. He said, oh, look, I'd love you to come and work with me. So I'd only been in Young about six months and suddenly I was packing my bags again and moving to Canberra. So they'd appointed me from 
to do the 7 to 10 p.m. show. And I was on that for about a fortnight, and I got a phone call from CTC7 saying, oh, well, via our program director, saying, oh, this bloke that's on nights, we wouldn't mind putting him on telly. So that all sort of tied together as well. So I, I really did become king of the kids. I think I had about 72% of that that uh, 10 to 17-year-old audience at the time. So if you weren't listening to Trevor, there was something wrong. Now, Trevor, that would have been around about the time that uh, Con Van, or as we knew him as Carl Van Est, was either at the station or had just moved on. Yeah, no, well, he was still there when I got there. I actually replaced David Kidd, who now, of course, is BP&R. Oh, or part of BPNR. Um, yeah, Con, no, Con slash Carl and I got on like a house on fire. He really loved his music and he introduced me to a lot of the local musos. And then when uh, people would come to town, he'd usually have them in to talk to them on his show. So I'd then get to meet them and I'd sort of lure them over to my TV show as well. Now, speaking of interesting characters, was that around the time that you had your interviewing skills and techniques tested by a guy called Lou Reed? <laughs> You've done your homework, Paul. <laughs> it would be about that time. I may, it may have been a little earlier. Lou Reed, sadly, was one of the very first interviews I ever did, and I'd come up to Sydney to do it. And Lou Reed was on this about this thing called binaural sound. And I'm going, oh, right, I was tripping out there somewhere and I tried to uh, get off the topic of binaural sound and talk about his music and his background, but no, it was all about binaural sound and I've never heard the term since. Moving through to 1978 and 2SM, of course, the station was on top of its game and the jocks were all household names. Now, as the new kid on the block, when you first walked in, was it daunting, exciting, terrifying, or just all of the above? Yes, I go all of the above there, but gee, I think exciting takes the cake. And there were a couple of people that I'd worked with before. Keith Williams was working at 2SM at the time. I'd worked with Keith, who was doing our drive show down in Canberra prior to my arrival in Sydney. So that was a good one too because I um, I really got the offer from Barry Chapman to come up and join the team there. And this was, I mentioned a little earlier that I had set myself a, a three-year goal to come back to Sydney. Well, this was in two years. So it was like there was the excitement and a little bit of trepidation, but it was just a great team of people and a team of people that just loved what they were doing and as you say, they were you know, top of the pile at the time. A bunch of stars. You had Ian McRae and his crew on, on the breakfast show. Uh, Gibson and Moore were on mornings. Gordon O'Boom was on afternoons. Ronnie Sparks was on drive. Uh, Peter Grace was on nights. And I was pulled in here, here as the, um, you know, the, the young fella doing the mid-dawn show. And in about probably three months, maybe four months, suddenly they, Gordon O'Byrne had gone. Barry Chapman had called me up 
and said, oh, mate, we need to put you on the air this afternoon. It was funny. It was right after a Knack concert the night before, and I'd been down to the Horton Pavilion to introduce the Knack. Uh, we'd all had a bit of a, a, a beverage or two afterwards, shall we say. And I get the phone call the next morning saying, oh, Trev, we need to go on afternoons today. Oh, right Okay, that starts at 12, doesn't it? It's now like 7 a.m. Go in, do some prep. We used to do an afternoon request show. I had Maureen backing me up, making all the uh, phone calls out to the to the punters of the day. And it got to uh, 10 to 3 when the show was finishing at 3. And into the studio walks Barry Chapman, the program director. He said, that been sounding good this afternoon, Trev. Oh, thank you. Uh, by the way, this shift's yours now. <laughs> that was it. That was my appointment to Afternoons on Sydney Radio. Now, you mentioned Barry Chapman there. Can you tell us a little about Barry and his influence on you personally and that station overall? Well, Barry shaped it back in the day. That was the whole thing about that rise of 2SM. And he had a real passion for building an Australian-sounding station that would appeal to listeners of a younger generation and then growing that younger generation up into their, you know, mid-20s and on to their 30s. Um, so he was a huge influence on the radio station. You've got to remember we're heading to the end of the 70s, all that great music of the 70s. There was a producer that I worked with at the end of 1979 whose name escapes me, but we were putting together the whole promotion of that concert of the decade that they did down at the Sydney Opera House. We also did an, uh, an audio version wrapping up some of the biggest acts and biggest stories through the 1970s, through the 1979. So, yeah, look, I mean, he really did help shape that radio station. But you've got to say, we, I would get in there in the early hours of the morning get these bits together to put this what was effectively a month-long special through the month of October uh, together, wrapping up 10 years of great music, then get on air and do my show, then go to lunch, then go back to the studios and do more. We were pretty much knocking out 16-hour days of radio back then. Yeah, quite amazing. Now, Trevor, the good folk of Sydney who are around in 2080 will be treated to you and some Vintage 2SM broadcasting thanks to a time capsule that has been placed at the foundation plaque of the Sydney Tower. How did all that come about and what are the people likely to hear in 60 years' time? Very interesting one, that one, Paul, because I don't even recall what was put on that. They came to me and said, we'd really like to put something in the foundation stone to indicate what was going on in 1979 on Sydney radio. So I wouldn't be the only one in it, but I'm thinking, I mean, it's just going to be a full on music show unless they've grabbed some of the audio from our specials that were were wrapping up the decade. That could be the case as well. I never actually got to hear the piece that was submitted. So the best memories of 2SM? Oh, where do I start? I mean, as you say, you you arrive with all that excitement of being on Sydney Radio for the first time, that magnificent building that was down on Blues Point Road, 
sitting in your studio at three o'clock in the hour, you know, midday to three in the afternoon, looking out over the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and everything that goes with it, you really felt that there was a connection to what was going on in the city because of what you could see going on in the city. Uh, other memories, gosh, there's just too many. It was just a fabulous place to work at the time. Radio 11, The Amazing AM. Also in 1979, you jumped off the juggernaut of 2SM and headed down to the Amazing AM at 2UW. Any particular reason for that move at that stage? Yeah, Ronnie Sparks, uh, he'd gone a few months earlier. I'm not sure when he actually left. He may have left in early 1979, perhaps. And he'd taken Gordon O'Byrne over to, to UW and then me. So he approached me, said, look, we'd love you to come over and do afternoons on to UW as well. And uh, we've got Gordon on, on drive. And I think Ronnie was still doing a breakfast show. And, of course, we had um, Gordon Elliott was doing mornings. He'd replaced, uh, he'd replaced John Laws on the morning show. So it was a very strong lineup. Uh, Ronnie did drop a line on me one day, though, about Gordon Elliott. He said, you can see the kind of radio station I'm trying to build here, Trev. Gordon will be big one time, but it won't be here. So he was really trying to build a hot CHR radio station for, like, 1979, 1980 in Sydney that was a little reminiscent of what they would have been rolling out at KFRC in San Francisco and stuff like that. There was, of course, a strong lineup of talent with some of radio's great names amongst them, including a quiet introvert by the name of Rick Melbourne. Everyone who's worked with him has a Rick Melbourne story. Do you have one for us? <laughs> I had a couple of Rick Melbourne stories because he was a great bloke, and he's still still a great bloke. But Rick was he he was I had been a fan, shall we say, of Rick when he was on Three DB, and when I was in regional radio, I would listen to 3DB and catch up on you know, Rick Melbourne shows and stuff like that. So when he came and worked with us at 2UW, it was great. Oh, mate, you've been listening to me. Good, good, good. Any people around this building that you think might like to work with me? So we came up with a few people that were you know, kids out of the carting room or you know, basically the office runner because Rick was very good at grabbing people like the tea lady. Rule of the tea, tea lady ended up as a regular character on Rick's show, and that's the way he would work. So that's one of my great memories of, of Rick was those early days at, uh, at 2UW when we were down in Kent Street. Then, of course, he came back to 2UW to do the breakfast show. Did he do the breakfast show or was he doing a night? I think he ended up coming back to do a night show in the 80s. Uh, Once again, he pulled in all those same people that he'd been working with, you know, four or five years earlier. You're a great talent indeed. Hey, listen, just having a look through that 1983 station roster, it boasted Rick Melbourne, Ronnie Sparks, Trevor Sinclair and Pete Rudder as the daytime offerings. Some genuine talent there. But then you look across the dial, there was plenty of competition in that afternoon shift where you were up against Tim Webster on 2Day FM, Trevor Smith on Triple M, Frank Fursey on 2SM, Dave Whitcomb on 2WS, with Lawsy and Bob Rogers just hovering around on 2UE. Yeah, the lineups in those days were just fantastic across the board. And you 
would go home and listen. I will. I would record some of the other people and hear what they were doing on their shows. Uh, but you've got to think, we're talking there, we're, we, when we were at our absolute peak, it was about 1981, I would guess, at 2UW, and the format had been tightened up because we had an American consultant come in and said, no, nah, this is the way you're going to do it. The songs were suddenly thrown into these two-hour rotations. <laughs> and, and oddly enough, I mean, some great promotions around it, it worked. And we went from a five share to a 15 share in one book. Now, Trevor, many things in radio have changed over the years. And in these days of Spotify and Apple Music, there is now no longer the need for a good old ringer request program. But that was a staple of yours at 2UW. How sad is it that that particular connection with the audience is now a thing of the past? It is a bit. And I don't know why it's actually gone away. And I think it would still survive particularly with people of the vintage that we're broadcasting to now. People, I literally had somebody on my breakfast show yesterday who out the back of the phone call, totally unsolicited, he said, you know, Trevor, I know your name. Were you at 2SM? And I said, well, yes, 44 years ago, you know, were you actually listening? And he went, yeah, yeah, I'm 57 now. So there's that prime example of one of those kids that Barry Chapman was trying to secure and grow up through the ranks to grow with the radio station. Um, so he's like nine years younger than me. I'm going, gosh, this is exactly what we probably could be doing again because that's what these people want. I had another fellow on the phone yesterday going, oh, uh, can I request, <clears throat> pardon me, Oh, can I request uh, Dwayne Eddy's Peter Gunn? And I'm going, there's an old song that I know rather well. Yeah, he used to play that on the lunch break on 2UW, he would say, or he said. And I went, gosh, you get that vibe of people that are now in their 50s to 70s or 55 to 70s that will go, yeah, we don't mind it. I don't care if there's music streaming. I want to get my song on the radio. I want to inflict my song on everybody else. Moving on to the early 80s, and the FM influence started to infiltrate the airwaves. Now, for a music-based AM station like 2UW, how aware were you of the damage that FM could do to the station's very existence, and how important was it to successfully bid for the right to convert in 1994? That was an interesting one, too, because it did take a long time for... FM to get established. And we were very lucky. We continued to rate well, well and truly into the mid 80s and towards the late 80s. Getting that license by the time FM had really kicked in, I would say probably what, 1990, 1991, it had really started to dominate the music side of the of broadcasting in Sydney or indeed around Australia. But Getting that license was effectively to put us on an even playing field to say, hey, we can do this as well as you guys as long as we've got the same quality, same quality signal. Um, but gosh, the prices that those guys were paying to get those licenses, you know, back in the 90s and then beyond. I mean, what did what did uh what did today FM sell for? About 60 million or something when Willis was at the helm. 
that was the first of the big dollars. And I think then the, the government realised, oh, these people are making a lot of money out of these licences. We better be putting a bit of a tariff on that, shouldn't we? So of all the announcers at 2UW at the time of the conversion, only one made the cut, and that was you. Any particular reason why? I don't know the reason. I was very glad that I was. Um, Sheree Romaro had taken over as our... uh, She was the network program director, so she was there to tie the whole um, radio station together, but or the whole network together, but primarily we were going to be the first to launch on FM in Sydney. Um, yeah, a few people were shown the door. Just, I, I have no idea why. Um, she brought in George Moore. So effectively, he was there on the AM band for a little while with me and the others. And then when it came time to convert, she kept him on mornings on, I think we were still Classic Hits 2UW before the launch. And then when we launched the mix, he was on, he stayed on mornings and they put me into, oh, I think they moved me off drive into afternoons for the launch. Now you're testing me, Paul. <laughs> awesome. So taking up your position in the FM marketplace, what was that point of difference between the two established FMers and Mix? I was definitely a much softer AC. Bear in mind that Cherie had come through Today FM and she'd had a soft AC format at Today FM. Triple M was always your, your rock station. And Today FM, after Cherie had left there, it moved to a more pop-based format. And I think she came on into TUW and said, right, let me open my briefcase. Here's the format. Let's go. Yeah, and go you did. Hey, listen, you're also part of another FM launch, that being Vega 95.3 in Sydney and 91.5 in Melbourne. What do you believe were Vega's strong points and why did the station, under that call sign, last only five years? Look, that was a very interesting move too because I think Paul Thompson was being very adventurous and wanting to come up with something completely different as a sound on the radio in the two markets, Sydney, Melbourne. They'd spent a fortune on the the licence for them. He'd appointed people that were not previously radio people to run and develop the format. In fact, the fellow who was uh, Paul Clark was appointed not as a program director but almost as a production director because he'd worked on so much TV stuff and music TV. so he came in and developed the, the format for Vega. It was a very ABC-leaning format. They hired Angela Caterns for breakfast in Sydney. They had Wendy Harmer on morning. So it was leaning. It, it was like this fella had come in and gone, oh, and he had Francis Leach doing a night show, I think. But so he'd brought in all these non-commercial radio people effectively XABC. I'm just trying to think of some other Triple J people that arrived around the same time. So where it, where did it go off the rails, I think is the question roughly there, Paul. It was too broad. It was too highbrow. 
and it wasn't commercial. Of course, one of your more recent appointments was breakfast on 2CH in Sydney. Let me ask you about your on-air partner, the very versatile and extremely well-credentialed Indira Naidu. The fabulous Indira Naidu. What a talent. Gosh, is there anything that woman can't do? I mean, she's just released a book too. The book's called uh, uh, Place Between the Stars, and I've had a little read of it. Gosh, it's almost, I would say, an outpouring, an autobiography that's not listed as an autobiography. It's really her look at life and how she's got through some tough times. Okay, Trevor, just moving into the present for a second, is it fair to say that the advent of DAB Plus and mobile phone apps has injected a new lease of life into AM music stations, for example, 2UE and 4BH? Well, I think it has, and thank goodness that it did. When we, even back in the 2CH days, we managed to get, in the early days of starting to promote the app, we managed to get over 30% of our audience over to using the app. And then we started to get the kind of numbers that we were looking for on DAB+. Plus When there was 28%, that was the first time we'd ever seen the numbers, and 28% of our audience was listening on DAB only. Now, it's up to around that 44% mark. I'm seeing over 40% of the 2UE listeners are listening to us on DAB+. So it's it's got to be a better thing for us. The trouble is not having it in the car. And this is the thing I hear all the time from listeners when I talk to them. They go, oh, it's great. Yes, we've got a DAB Plus radio at home. There's one in the kitchen and there's one in the bathroom. But gee, mate, when I get in my truck and go to work, there's no DAB Plus in my truck when I go to work. And people you know, driving to work, commuters in cars, saying, no, we just don't have it. Beautifully now, I mean, I'm in the same boat. The apps now can talk to you through your Bluetooth and you can get the good quality through your Bluetooth in your car that way, which is fantastic. Okay, Trevor, a couple of quick questions. You've been involved in a number of syndicated programs over the years, but there's one particular job that took your voice right around the world well before radio stations were accessible on the internet. 12 years as part of our in-fight entertainment on the good old flying kangaroo. How important was that job for you personally, or was it just a bit of fun on the side? Oh, no, I loved it. (laughs) That was also because I think I loved it the most because it was totally me. I was doing the music. I was putting all the bits in between the music. I knew where that radio broadcast was going to. Um, And it was also kind of handy because you turn up at a check-in counter and they go, oh, you're the bloke from the back page of the in-flight magazine that does our FMQ show. Yeah, so 12 years of doing that show was great. And, of course, another one of those things that we started off from one angle because I was approached by Qantas to do it and I was approached by Qantas to do it because of the way I was presenting on mix and they wanted that kind of program for their in-flight show. So it made it very easy for me to be able to sit down and go, well, this is the kind of music we're going to play. These are the kind of guests we're going to have. And, you know, it was a a two-hour show that took a lot of work to put together, but they loved doing it. So how deep is your love for aviation? And what other associations have you had with Qantas over the years, besides the odd upgrade, of course? Well, that's it. That was, I mean, my love of aviation is very, I was 
an air cadet when I was in at Canterbury Boys High School. I had thoughts of being a pilot until I realised my maths wasn't up there. <laughs> but, yeah, look, I still love aircraft. and I was lucky enough back when they first brought the A380 into Sydney. I was working at Vega and got a message from Qantas, oh, look, would you like to come out and cover it? I went, oh, absolutely. So literally went out and covered. That was the first time they brought it in. This was before they'd put any seats or anything like that in an aircraft. It was the trial aircraft that they were flying around the world with barrels in it, pumping water between barrels as if they were to simulate passengers moving through the aircraft. That was a great experience. Um, then when Qantas actually got its first aircraft, I was one of the first, well, I was on that first flight. So that's the synergy there. So, Trevor, you mentioned early on how you dabbled in the hospitality and catering area. Can you tell us what herbs, exotic fruits and vegetables are growing in your backyard at the moment? And what would be the signature Trevor Sinclair surefire dinner party main course? Oh, okay. Um, what's growing at the moment? Not a lot in this wet. <laughs> Most of it's been flooded away. I do still have some lemongrass and some radishes and some beetle leaves, but not a lot. Oh, there's a little bit of red-veined rocket there, <laughs> but that's about all that's left. It's been shocking because it's been so wet, no sun, and my veggie patch has just about died. Uh, signature tune, signature, sorry, signature dish. Probably I do like a luck-luck, which is a very kind of special spicy beef dish that I got onto in Cambodia and the other one from Cambodia as well, which I'm trying to recall the name of because I haven't made it for so long. It's escaping me. Uh, amok. It's, and you can have amok with fish or amok with chicken. And it's really like a coconut curry, but it's not like any coconut curry you've had anywhere else in the world because of the way it's made. And in fact, I went off to a little cooking class when I was in Cambodia and learned how to make that one. So that probably is the signature dish. Hey, sounds nice. Finally, Trevor, many a teenage boy's fantasy in the late 70s, early 80s would have been to spend some one-on-one time with the mystical Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac. So tell me about the time when the top jock met Stephanie Lynn Nicks. Well, that was against the rules too because the publicist, Patty Austin, had told me, no, Trevor, no one-on-one interviews this tour. And I had learnt where Stevie was staying, so I got the biggest bunch of flowers together and got them delivered to where she was staying with a little note. Here's my phone number. Love to do an interview. And I got a note back. I got a call back from her PA saying, meet Stevie after the show tonight at the Sydney Entertainment Centre. It was that simple. So I went, watched the show, went backstage afterwards, did the interview and I was doing a national show that time. I can't recall if it was the hit file or music across Australia was my syndicated show at that time. So I literally sat down and rolled tape, shall we say on Stevie Nicks for an hour and 10 minutes. It just didn't stop. (laughs) So then I had to go and cut it up and put it into a radio show. So was she different to what you expected? No, she was exactly what I thought she'd be. The only difference, I thought that she could have been a little more aloof, but not at all. And just, as I say, sat down for 
an hour and ten minutes after the uh, after the concert, and the poor publicist banging on the door saying, "Come on, we've got other things we've got to go and do, Stevie." No, no, I'm happy here. <laughs> so, yeah, one of one of my one of my greatest memories, actually. Okay, Trevor, time now for a dozen or so quick-fire questions. First one is, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was doing afternoons on 2UW, down in the old Kent Street days, and David Glyde was in our newsroom, and he came up into the studio and he said to me, getting word of John Lennon's death. I went, what? John Lennon? How could John Lennon be dead? So young. And things were bits and pieces of stories were coming through and suddenly I've got David on the intercom. Yeah, it sounds like he's died in Dakota. Oh, right. So anyway, that's exactly what I repeated on the air. David Glyden in the newsroom tells me that uh, John Lennon's been found dead in Dakota. It wasn't until like 15 minutes after that we found out that it was the Dakota building in New York City and he'd been murdered. We didn't even know that he'd been murdered at the first in the first instance. The last concert ticket you paid for? Never. <laughs> no, no, never, never paid for a concert ticket in my life. <laughs> Wear that with a badge of honour, obviously. Uh, the last, uh, <laughs> the concert act that you regret never seeing. Oh gosh! Well, I was too young to see the Beatles. I wished I could have seen the Doors as well, but yeah, they they'd probably be the the two big ones that I. Really wish, really wish I could have seen live. Was there one particular word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Oh, and you're going to make me say it, aren't you? It's quite funny that you do this because Julie, who I do a little bit on my breakfast show with, had me saying words the other day because she couldn't say meteorologist. And I've always had trouble saying Sutherland. But now I've practised it so much to say it on air last Friday, I could say it. Sutherland. Trevor, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? <laughs> oh, probably not, except for uh, turning up for a countdown on New Year's Eve and swapping out the first song, <laughs> because we were more of a pop song. It's the old 2UW days, too. And we were more of a, a pop-oriented radio station. And I didn't have to be on air for all of midnight I just had to be there for the last five songs of the countdown so we played the last five songs of the countdown I'd had a party that was still going on at my place at home I'd driven into work played the last five songs got to midnight and out of midnight I rolled out U2's New Year's Day Roddy Sparks was straight on the phone what do you think you're doing that might have been when I could have got the marching orders Skyhooks or Sherbert oh definitely hooks <laughs> Far more eclectic rock. Love the theatrics. Really love their songs and their music. And yeah, just yeah, definitely hooks. Okay, Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Yes, yeah, see, I can't compare those guys either, except for the fact that I never got to see the Beatles, but I have seen the Stones twice. I saw the Stones at Wembley, and it was one of the most desirable concerts I've ever been to having this was in the 80s so I'd listened to the Stones for 20 odd years and finally got to see them performing live 
So, yeah, I can't compare the two, but if I was to lean towards one, I'd go Stones for live, but I'd go Beatles for creativity. The most treasured piece of memorabilia you have from those early radio days. Ah, uh, yes, my two Pater Awards. So I've got one Pater Award. This is the thing that procured that now really good-looking award, the ACRA. It's nice that somebody actually made something that looks like it belongs in radio instead of the pyramid that I got. But I got a little, I got two little glass pyramids. Uh, one was for my, uh, I think it was Best Metro Music Presenter. And the other one was for my syndicated show, The Hit File. And so, yes, so they're my two, my Pater Awards. Hey, nice one. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air. Well, I was doing breakfast in Nara when Elvis died. So that was right up there. And then I mentioned John Lennon a bit earlier. I'm like the doomsday broadcaster, aren't I? (laughs) I was on breakfast at at, uh, 2ST when... Elvis died, I had to break that one. I was doing the night show at 2CC in Canberra when Johnny O'Keefe died. And then, of course, the John Lennon one at 2UW. So, gosh, they're all right up there equally. Big stories breaking and all music-based. Trevor, the moment someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck. I, look, I really can't say I've ever been starstruck. It's probably just the kind of person I am. But... Um, I do have an interesting Kylie Minogue story, which it's not starstruck. It was a star, quotation marks, playing the star. And, you know, you want to show a bit of hospitality when somebody comes to your radio studio. So normally it's like, oh, would you like a cup of tea, a coffee, a water? I said, look, is there anything we can get you? And Kylie responded, a cucumber sandwich. (laughs) Who... Who do you think you are wandering into a radio station at two o'clock in the afternoon demanding a cucumber sandwich? We're not a delicatessen. <laughs> I think she'd been on the road all day, basically. I think that her people hadn't looked after her. I think she seriously wanted the cucumber sandwich. Yeah, I could think of about 100 things that might be in a radio station fridge and cucumber sandwiches wouldn't be up there, I can tell you. Best words of advice from a program manager. Oh, that's just got to be talk to your audience like you're talking to me. I really like to talk to people like I'm talking to you now, family or friends. And I often think the way I talk to people on air is as if I've got them on the telephone. So I'm not broadcasting to a hall full of people. It's, hey, you know, g'day, Barbara. You're on the other end of the radio. You're like on the other end of the phone to me. That's the way I try to deal with it. Finally, Trevor, two of your favourite albums that still might get a run today. Oh, um, for different reasons. Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, I won that at school for writing an essay about school. That was the very first thing I ever owned, first album I ever owned, or maybe actually the first album I ever owned. The first one I ever bought was The Doors, LA Woman. Mm-hmm. Hence another reason I would have really liked to see The Doors play live. Fantastic. Hey, listen, was, uh, I've just, can I throw in a third? Because I've had dealings of late with Leo Sayer. And Leo's just released a new album, <clears throat> pardon me, called Northern Songs. And it's all Beatles songs and his interpretation of Beatles songs. And you might remember back in the 70s, must have been about, oh gosh, 1976 maybe, 
All this in World War II was a film with a soundtrack that was done with Beatles songs, and Leo did three songs on that. And, yeah, I'd put that up in my top three albums because it was just really great interpretations of Beatles music. Well, we'll definitely keep an ear open for that one. Hey, Trevor, as we said originally, almost 47 years in the business, one of the great jocks of the 70s and 80s and still going strong. Hey, thanks so much for chatting with us today and keep up the good work. No, terrific. And thank you, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. Trevor Sinclair on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.